I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Well, tonight is a little bit about averting the collapse of, at least, government. Um, there's a fair amount of dismay lately on, you know, government is broken. Usually what people mean is the Senate is broken, or the California legislature is broken, or the uh, process by which voters put forward uh, peculiar propositions is broken. But the way government gets broken is not just with votes, but by... Uh, whole levels of participation that Beth Novak is taking an angle on, both with the kind of philosophy of open government and what's especially interesting to an audience like this is basically the techniques and technology of open government. Please welcome Beth Novak. Thank you. Thank you to Stuart and thank you to the Long Now Foundation. I am thrilled to be back in San Francisco uh, and to have the chance to talk to you tonight. It will not be six easy steps. I think it is uh, many more very difficult steps uh, to try to rebuild and remake our government, to reshape our government and bring change to the way it works to make it more effective, more efficient, and to better serve us, the American people. But I want to start my story a little bit further back in Florence in uh, the year 1421 when Filippo Brunelleschi, whose work we've all gone to admire in the domes of Florence as tourists, received a three-year patent for a barge with hoisting gear that carried marble along the Arno River. It was one of the earliest patents, uh, and of course then in Venice, the process of patenting proliferated over the course of the 15th century, and the glassmakers of Venice received patents, again, for the process of creating glass. And as Venetians began to emigrate, the idea of patenting, of getting monopolies on the way that glass was manufactured, uh, diffused then and spread to other countries. Countries, for example, like England, where, of course, the monarchs and rulers of England, and again, and through countries throughout Europe, were in the habit of granting patents, largely as a way to raise funds for the crown, to favored persons who were prepared to pay for them, to have the monopoly rights to uh, manufacture, whether it was not simply new and useful inventions, but even ordinary inventions like salt. And so the reality of invention and innovation became disconnected from the institutional practice, the abusive institutional practice of granting monopolies. And after a public outcry, the institution was, of course, reformed. And James I of England was forced to forego the, the, uh, his process of uh, his right of granting patents. And in 1623, Parliament declared the Statute of Monopolies, which restricted the, pounds crowd, the, the Crown's power um, to actually issue patents and began to then systematize and regularize the process of giving to inventors uh, the patent over a certain number of years over their inventions. So this spreads, of course, then to the U.S. It comes over from England, and the patent clause of the Constitution, many of you may know, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 8, that talks about securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. This is the only clause in the Constitution that's enacted without any debate. 
because it is by this time common practice to have a patent system. And it was long the practice not only in England, but of course had been the practice in the states before then and becomes adopted then by the federal government, um, largely as a way to resolve contentious fights that are going on among the states over patents over the steamship and steamship technologies, but also because it's a really cheap way for the now bankrupt federal government uh, to give this right to inventors by giving them a private right to say, you can go out with this monopoly and exploit it. It doesn't cost us anything. We don't have any money because we've got to pay back this revolutionary war debt. So why don't you go ahead and so is enacted without debate this clause in the Constitution. But in fact, this system becomes broken as well. Thomas Jefferson, as you may know, was not only Secretary of State, but also the first head of the Patent Office. And he has, in addition to all the other things he's doing, has to examine 30 patents that are waiting for him to review. And it's too much work for him. So he says, forget this patent examination system. We're going to switch to a registration system. Basically, pay your fee, get a stamp, you get a patent. So, and 40 years later, in 1836, we say, well, this is again, we have this disconnect between the reality of innovation and the idea of granting patents. And so we evolve from this system of abusive monarchical control. In our constitutional republic, we evolve a kind of routinized system of creating, of issuing patents. But once again, we find ourselves at a point of disconnect where this system isn't working. The office that is supposed to be the office of innovation is mired in bureaucracy. We have backlogs, piles of paper, which I'm pleased to report that the new head of our patent office, David Kapos, is working hard to reduce and is bringing down this backlog. But we have 700,000 backlog patents which haven't been examined with examiners who have at most between 18 to 20 hours to actually read all the literature, review the patent, and decide whether it deserves a 20-year grant of monopoly rights to become the new iPod or cancer-curing, uh, 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 life-saving cure, or whatever important invention it may be. And these are being done by people who have, uh, in many cases, a BA in a science and maybe not a, even in the science of the patent which they are examining. And this has serious social consequences, diverting large amounts of money away from scientific R&D that could be used and put back into discovering those cures for cancer and instead being sent over to the lawyers like me and the students which I train. Uh, so they are in fact uh, um, diverting potentially uh, uh, money away from developing innovation and into a system instead of litigation. So this is just one example, I think one of many, of the way in which government institutions have been uh, what I would call at risk of creating a single point of failure. In other words, we're concentrating decision-making power in the hands of too few people, whether legislators in Congress or cabinet officials in the executive branch or bureaucrats in agencies like the Patent Office, but we construct our institutional practices around this notion that this is the best way that we have to make decisions that we have to entrust these important public decisions to government decision makers at one remove from the biases of public participation. And in fact, this is however, um, we are, even though we are moving away from, you know, we don't have a system of monarchy or aristocracy, but we still believe in this notion, I think institutionally, of the notion of political expertise and the notion that we have to rest power at the center. 
And what exacerbates this problem, and we were discussing this earlier today, is that we are making very long-term decisions that affect the fate of our planet, the fate of our economy, the fate of our major systems of healthcare and education, are being made by people who are in very short-term political positions. So we have a disconnect between the long-term uh, effect of what we do and the short-term electoral cycles uh, that characterize the way that we tend to make decisions in our government. But this president, my president, Barack Obama, has talked about myriad times the fact, to quote him, that the best ideas don't come from Washington. And that, in fact, we have to look at the ways we can re-engineer our institutions to look at taking advantage of the expertise that comes outside, from outside the center, from the periphery, and bring it into the way that we make decisions, if you will, in the center. It has very serious consequences if we don't do this. We're witnessing the disconnect now. You know, an approval rate of Congress now that's about flat at, on a good day at about 25%, um, and that is often less than that. But the faith in government, the trust in government institutions is at an all-time low. And it's understandable if you think about the serious threats that we face, whether from global pandemics or international terrorism, that, that organizations and institutions that are built on a 19th century conception of sovereignty and 19th century nation states and borders don't fit with the kind of global, porous, uh, uh, distributed threats that we face today. And so this fear that we have that Madison worried about in Federalist 10, where he worried about the factionalism in American politics and the factionalism that would happen from the rabble is in fact happening when we have such a disconnect between what happens in the center and what happens at the periphery. The centralization in, of power is in fact potentially driving a factionalized and disgruntled and increasingly dissatisfied and distrusting public where participation and power are increasingly being driven apart, and the distance between the citizen and the government that works for him is increasing, which is compelling government in turn to adopt, or was until now, less participatory institutions that in turn fuels this process of dissatisfaction. A process that I think we see reflected now in a kind of reactionary populism that's springing up in the Tea Party movement in the United States or anti-immigrant uh, nationalist parties in Europe, we're seeing the kind of alienating forces that are at work at the moment. But coming back to our good friend Jefferson for the moment, he of course knew everything that there was to know and he was way ahead of his time. When he was heading up the patent office in 1791, he writes to his good friend, uh, a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and he says, I have a problem. I have this patent application sitting on my desk for an alchemy process, alchemical process, and I don't really know how to examine it. I would be so obliged as your most humble servant if you would actually help me to review this patent application. He took advantage of the distributed expertise that was available to him. Mind you, he used a letter and not the internet at that point. Um, but we too are now coming to recognize the opportunities that are available to us if we take advantage of today's technology, the technology that's allowing us to come together in new ways to work together increasingly powerfully as groups on the internet, as purposive groups, uh, if we can take advantage of this power for the benefit of our political institutions. 
So you've heard lectures here and elsewhere in discussion, of course, about the re-engineering of the music industry and the publishing industry and the industry of journalism. And we hear, of course, you know, depending on who talks about it, the death knell being sounded for any one of these industries on the one hand, if you talk to people on the East Coast, and the phoenix uh, uh, cry rising from the ashes on the West Coast of the reinvention of these industries. Well, I come to you tonight and wonder whether we might engage in the similar kind of geographic arbitrage and figure out here together whether there are ways that we can re-engineer our political institutions in the same way that we are thinking about this in regard to our institutions in, in social and economic life. So we did a small experiment along these lines with a project that we call Peer to Patent that I want to tell you about for a minute and then bring you up to date on what we're doing in the Obama administration to do this on a more widespread scale. So E.O. Wilson once said, the world is full of amateurs gifted amateurs, devoted amateurs. You can pick almost any group that has any kind of intrinsic interest in it, from dragonflies to pill bugs to orb-weaving spiders. Anybody can pick up information in interesting places, find new species to rediscover what was thought to be a vanished species or some new biological fact about a species already known. And if we seize upon this truth that out there, there is everywhere there is an expert in something, whether it's uh, expertise that is derived through experience or through learning or through enthusiasm, that each of us is an expert in something. And we are increasingly using it, that expertise, whether it's to make YouTube videos and put them online or get involved in distributed coding projects or participate in new ways in our social life that we might actually take advantage of in our political life. So the idea behind peer to patent was to take this problem of bureaucratic slowdown and inefficiency in the patent office and to marry to this idea of self-selected expertise and create a process by which people could volunteer, self-selected, to work together not as individuals merely sending information to the government, but work together in teams and groups to help discover information that would help an examiner decide whether a patent truly deserves uh, a 20-year grant of monopoly rights, the patent. Is it truly non-obvious and novel as the law requires? And so by creating a software interface and a software system that would allow groups of people to self-select, to come together to review each other's work, so again in groups, not simply as individuals, and thereby to take some of the burden off the already beleaguered government examiner, by using visual interfaces and the screen to help reflect back to and explain to people clearly what is it that they need to do, how do they divvy up the tasks of actually examining a patent, we were able to set up a project not at a remove from government, but together with government, the first institutionalized social network in the federal government to actually participate in the work of decision making that would actually allow us to connect a network to an institution to help it improve the way it works. Now this is not, despite, you know, people, I have a book out called Wiki Government and the word wiki is fun and easy to say, but it's not in fact a purely wikified process where there's a free-for-all where anybody can type and write whatever they want. And of course Wikipedia doesn't work this way any, either. But it marries the crowdsourcing of scientific expertise with the institutionalized legal decision making by a patent examiner to arrive at a decision. So we get the software engineers and the garage enthusiasts from all over the country saying, ah, let me take a look at that invention. Have I seen anything like that before? And we marry that to the knowledge of the legal rules of the patent system that the examiner has to arrive hopefully faster and better at a decision. 
Now, this process, which began as a pilot program over two years, is in the process of being transformed into an institutionalized process of the Patent Office to actually bring it in-house as, as the way the Patent Office will work. And so what we see here is the opportunity, I think, to rethink uh, not only our democratic institutions, but our democratic theory. And let me pause for a moment to say why I think that this is actually uh, a change over the way that we've talked about even participatory democracy before. So a lot of people with the advent of technology said, great, we will move to a system of direct democracy, push-button voting, where we can actually have everybody voting in real time directly on making decisions. But we know that that, of course, is not uh, a, a, a sufficiently complex as a way of working. I mean, it's nice, you know, when my students can push a clicker and say faster and slower or louder or I don't understand. But in the complex world of political decision making, direct democracy uh, is not necessarily the best way to make decisions on the basis of information and good science. On the other hand, there's the world really of deliberative democracy which has long been held up as the great ideal to which we should aspire, where neighbors talk to one another in civic and civilized discourse. But the problem with deliberative democracy, and this is in part the artifact of our old technological era, um, is that it puts all the emphasis on talk rather than on action. So whereas it's very nice to come together with one's neighbors and debate the issues of the day, if what we really have to do is make change happen and take action, we have to think, in fact, not about the inputs, not about how we talk together, but the outputs. How do we actually take action together? How do we solve problems? How do we get stuff done? Um, it, it, and that is what I would term or refer to as collaborative democracy. The world of peer-to-patent, where we actually are marrying up the work of the crowd, the work of the network with that of the institution that allows us to an extent, and I think this is a midway point on a longer term historical trajectory, which I'll talk about in a minute, of devolving power downward, of devolving power outward from our representative institutions at the center that are supposed to represent us, but increasingly are disconnected from us to a much more decentralized world of power where the groups to which we can join and to which we belong and that's the exciting thing about the online life is that now we can choose from among thousands of different associations to which we want to contribute our time and our money and our attention, whether for a short term or for longer term, that we can get involved in in order to make change happen, to do stuff in the world, a kind of cosmopolitan pluralism, if you will, that the Internet enables a new kind of equality of power that really allows us now to think about how we can re-engineer our institutions um, not simply for the sake of talk, but as a means to an end of actually achieving things in the world better, faster, and in new and creative ways to attract and attack the complex problems that really uh, we confront. And at the basis of this is really the notion, which is, which is, I think, something that we all essentially intuitively realize and know, and which has been supported by a great deal of empirical research by folks like the Group Brain Project at Harvard, Stephen Koslin and Richard Hackman, the idea that when we come together, when we share our diverse expertise, we are stronger than when we work alone. And for so long, our systems of political participation, particularly in government, have always revolved around the individual, the individual vote, the individual comment on a regulatory rulemaking, uh, but are so limited in the way that we have turned to looking at groups of people and organizations of people to really get involved in helping us to do our jobs better. And so this is a world that we're seeing lots of um, this concept 
that is now emerging increasingly in our social life, but not yet in our political life to the same extent. So if we look at very recently, to look, talk about something that's in the news just in the last few weeks, in response to Haiti, in response to Chile, the crisis camps that have sprung up, groups of people that are getting together to hold hackathons, if you will, in support of creating software that will help for disaster relief and recovery. So Mission 4636, the emergency reporting service um, that allowed anyone in Haiti with a cell phone to text the number 4636 with a message, a geocoded message that would help identify where that person actually was, and that relied then on teams of volunteers to translate those messages from Creole into English and to help actually identify, again, where people were. So that actually combined the concept of crowdsourcing lots of distributed volunteers with then micro work, specific tasks that people would need to do in order to solve the tremendous problem of disaster relief and recovery. This is now growing into a whole movement that's come to be called crisis commons, not just crisis camps that take place on weekends, but that now is, I think, going forward over time that will become an institutionalized, organ organized effort at developing better software and tools and better, again, organization of volunteers to help with disaster relief and recovery. And we got this really, really well in the campaign. We all knew about this when we got involved and engaged, whether it was for Obama or whether it was for McCain. Uh, we understood what it meant to do this kind of distributed work. So we knew what it meant, in fact, to then to phone bank or to get someone to drive to the polls or to donate money or to take on a task that would allow us to participate toward the common end of electing the candidate of our choice. I bet that many people in the audience here were in some way involved in Silicon Valley for Obama which, as we all know, was not a campaign office set up by the central apparatus in Chicago, but was spontaneously created by volunteers in the South Bay who galvanized tens of thousands of volunteers to actually get involved in, in building the tools and doing the phone banking and doing the work to actually help to support the campaign and became, in fact, part of the election apparatus, if you will, but grew up spontaneously from outside. And, you know, Obama himself has talked about this, and he writes about this in The Audacity of Hope when he talks about his visit to Google, and he talks about the mesmerizing image, more organic than mechanical, he says, as if I were glimpsing the early stages of some accelerating evolutionary process in which all the boundaries between men, nationality, race, religion, wealth were rendered invisible and irrelevant. So the physicist in Cambridge, the bond trader in Tokyo, the student in a remote Indian village, and the manager of a Mexico City department store were drawn into a single constant thrumming conversation, time and space giving way to a world spun entirely of light a very poetical rendition of that sense that we have, that oceanic feeling of being part of the network that allows us um, to bring about this kind of change. So the question is, how do we take this change.org, if you will, what we all know from our civic life. And there are tens of examples. And this is bringing Coles to Newcastle. To talk about this in the Bay Area, all of these examples come from here, um, or most of them, many of them. Uh, but the question is, how do we import this? How do I take this back with me to Washington? How do we import this into a vision of reshaping our institutions so that they go from looking like this to looking like that? So there are some examples. So DARPA turns around and to celebrate the growth of the Internet, 
they run this competition, which many of you may have heard about, to say, well, how, who can identify the fastest where these 10 balloons end up? These are the release of the 10 balloons. And MIT runs this phenomenal crowdsourcing project that essentially, not unlike uh, 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 other incentive-based uh, social networking schemes, awards, allows people uh, who get help from people in their social network identifying where the balloons are to share the reward money with them. And in nine hours, using simple off-the-shelf social networking, commercially available, Facebook, et cetera, uh, uh, social networking technologies to identify where the 10 balloons actually work. Um, and, you know, in fact, this is this, this example, the idea of using teams and relying on teams and doing this in collaboration with the government institution is the exciting, I think, new prospect uh, of where we can go going forward, using technology to reinforce and enable the ability of people to work in groups and to work effectively in groups to self-organize themselves in ways that we could only do a few years ago if we worked together face-to-face, -face, we can now marry this ability of the network to the actual work of the institution. So we have to think about the process of institutional reinvention. And Alexis de Tocqueville, who came and observed, of course, American life now, not, not that long ago anymore, where are we in time? A while ago. Um, he writes in his recollections, I'm tempted to believe that what we call necessary institutions are often no more than institutions to which we have grown accustomed. And that in matters of social constitution, the field of possibilities is much more extensive than men living in their various societies are ready to imagine. And of course that's the case. Those of us who live within the status quo have a very hard time re-engineering from within. And yet if we want to think about the prospects for peaceful evolution rather than bloody revolution, we have to think about how we begin to embark on the path of the long now, of the re-engineering of our institutions in this peaceful way that will allow us, however, to experience change at scale. And so I want to tell you a little bit about how we are embarking on this process of institutional redesign now in the first year of the Obama administration. It is not the concept of the thousand flowers blooming, the kind of free-for-all, direct democratic, let's do all of government by wiki, um, nor is it the command and control approach that we have been used to in our representative institutions, which are nonetheless entirely have been command and control in the way that they work. Um, and yet there is instead the notion of a kind of focused collaboration, an organized collaboration that is, again, I think the interim point on this pathway towards a re-engineering of our democratic institutions. And this is an idea that I think has had a lot of compelling resonance, not just within government and without, but the idea of a cultural change that has been picked up by so many people, all of whom are outside government now, um, picked up after the president issued his first day memorandum, the very first action that the president took. And I think that has significance, that it was the very first thing that he did was to sign this executive memorandum on transparency and open government on his first day in office to use the bully pulpit and the tremendous star power of his presidency especially to say we are going to change the way that our institutions function according to three core values, transparency, participation, and collaboration. In other words, we're going to use openness as a mantra to drive the way that we do business not as essentially a new thing, not as a vertical, but as a horizontal, as the social operating layer of the way that our institutions work. We are actually going to institute a policy process that began with this memorandum and had another culminating point on December 8th when we issued the directive on open government. 
to say that we are going to try to move all of our political institutions towards more open and collaborative, towards more networked ways of working. So this is a tough question, and we can talk, and I hope that we do, about what it means to try to re-engineer an institution as big as the American government from within, within a manageable amount of time. I know that there's the long now perspective, which says we could just wait it out until all the institutions crumble, and maybe in a thousand years it'll all look different, but I'm too impatient for that. Um, and, you know, so I am the, uh, a short now thinker in that sense, and we have to try to marry the sense of enthusiasm and action and doing things in the here and now with a long-term vision of what it means to actually have, uh, uh, you know, what it actually means to have institutions that act in a long-term responsible way by creating the institutions, catalyzing the change that will make that possible. So every agency has now been tasked with the idea of coming up with its own open government plan. It is not a top-down uh, stricture or mandate, except insofar as to say every agency from the bottom up must come up with its own plan for how to re-engineer the way that it works. How do we take essentially the strategic goals of the agency, the strategic goals of all the actors within the executive branch of government, and change the way that they happen? How do we get everybody to start thinking about what can you do to try to make change happen informed by these values? Now, part of the way that we do that is, of course, with people. People and charismatic leadership is incredibly important, and that starts with President Obama himself. And it starts with the creation of new roles, like a chief technology officer, uh, Anish Chopra, or a chief federal chief information officer, like Vivek Kundra, who's here in San, who's here in San Francisco yesterday together with Gavin Newsom, uh, unveiling the new Open 311 initiative that some of you may have seen in the news. Or I'll just pick out one other person, Todd Park, uh, who some of you may know, also from the West Coast, the co-founder of Athena Health, who now is the CTO, the new innovation head of health and human services. It's the creation of these new roles uh, that helps to actually spread the message of cultural change and shift. And it's extremely important that in addition to that day one memorandum of transparency, participation, and collaboration, that those same values and those same words that went into writing that memorandum actually were also used to help interview cabinet secretaries and senior leaders and political appointees within the government before they were chosen to ensure that people were coming on board who ascribed to and believed in and this concept of institutional change and innovation of institutional R&D that we should turn upon ourselves to improve the way that our institutions work. We also do this, of course, we have to do it through projects enabled by the technical technology platforms that allow us to do these projects at scale across the federal government. And in part, we have to do it through real work that allows us to take the genie out of the bottle in order that we can't put it back in. Because it's one thing to articulate policies, to have noble words and grand statements about the importance of openness and transparency. But we all know that from administration to administration, these policies have changed. We have had one policy under Clinton, reverse then under Bush, reverse then under Obama, of course, that makes the default rule to be one of openness, a default rule more sweeping than ever before. But nonetheless, we have to back up the words and the commitment to transparency, which actual work that we're doing. So the commitment to transparency and the way we're bringing about change is by opening the doors and opening the data of government, making unprecedented openness the default, but also doing things like posting all the visitor logs from the White House, posting up online who comes and goes for the first time ever so that you can see and analyze, in fact, who comes to visit me. 
uh, and who comes to visit other people in the White House. To, so we know that there are no secret uh, energy meetings going on, but in fact those are happening out in the open. Um, that has, by the way, a very salutary effect on the way that we work because we then come to think about if I'm meeting with Group X on one side of the political spectrum, I maybe should now think about that I meet, need to meet with a group uh, group Y on the other side of the political spectrum in order to make sure that I'm hearing all views um, and getting adequate representation in the expertise which we're confronting. It also involves projects like, of course, uh, oops, I'll come back to this in a second, um, projects like launchingrecovery.gov uh, that are creating unprecedented transparency in the way that we uh, spend our money, posting the salaries of White House staff, um, work like po the, the 3.9 million streams of the healthcare summit that took place last week. Um, so there is this, the way in which by creating the technical platforms and pushing the release of the data onto platforms like data.gov and then the spin-off platforms that data.gov is spawning, whether on the state or local level, that are actually engendering and ensuring the data becomes truly transparent and open. Data.gov, since its inception a few months ago, has already had 60, over 64 million hits to the site. So to those who would ask who actually wants raw government data, well, 64 million people seem to want raw government data. And when it comes to Things like the IT dashboard or USAspending.gov, or I, this is ITUSAspending.gov that tracks $76 billion of IT spending in government. 89 million people seem to want to see this data that then in turn allows the kind of data jamming or culture jamming, if you will, where people take the data and mash it up and use it for other purposes, which I'll talk a little bit more about. But just last week, because we made available the stream of the video of the healthcare summit, the Sunlight Foundation was able to turn around and give readers and viewers then not only the video, but the video annotated by who, what campaign contributions are being given to the person who's speaking during the summit. Um, and it was phenomenal, the number of views that they got. And as one, um, as one critic put it, the Sunlight Foundation uh, media event that took place was, quote, a smackdown to CNN in terms of the actual tr you know, effect on transparency because they let the data do the talking and provide an alternative to the talking heads on the cable news shows or even the, po or even the talking politicians on C-SPAN by giving people the raw data, the chance to make up their minds for themselves uh, as it related to the healthcare summit. So when even you take this raw material when you can remix it and reuse it to do interesting things with it becomes a powerful, powerful social tool. So this goal of data transparency and ensuring that all agencies now under the Open Government Directive must inventory their data, decide which data to put up first online, uh, and have to release what we term high-value data um, are actually getting out their information that is either, for example, uh, information that is about government spending, so that helps us to reduce waste, fraud, and abuse by putting out information about how government money is being spent. And we use specifically the recovery.gov process, the spending and the tracking of spending of recovery money as a way to bootstrap data tracking down to the state and local level. Let me tell you, it's a very hard process because that data is kept in very different ways, uh, sometimes you know, in fancy coded XML, sometimes in Excel spreadsheets, sometimes in a shoebox at the local level. And so trying to track that data is hard, but we're starting the process using this as a mechanism for actually tra tracking how we spend money as a way of opening up and ensuring the government institutions are more efficient. But high-value data is more than just 
data that helps promote government accountability. It's also data that helps us to achieve the core mission of a given agency. And so, for example, the USDA has released a data set about nutritional, nutritional data set about uh, the nutritional information, caloric values on the top on the major foods that we eat. What this does, it doesn't help us know how much money the USDA spends, but what it does help us to do is to launch an initiative with foundations, with corporations, to create a game that helps young people make healthier eating decisions or that allows then volunteer developers to mash up that data and create cool iPhone applications, or new people to start businesses that might generate economic value. So it's high-value data because it achieves a core mission, in this case, reducing childhood obesity that has been one of the centerpieces, not only of the president, but of the first lady's agenda. That is a picture of a yam, by the way, if you're wondering what that is, um, in the White House garden, which I've had the privilege, speaking of crowdsourcing, you can volunteer to weed the White House garden. Um, which I have done. I have accidentally sat on the president's lettuce. Um, there is a picture of me doing this somewhere, but that is I, one of the high points of my political service thus far. And I'm not, I'm not really joking, because if you're a gardener, this is the most beautiful garden you have ever seen. There is not a weed in sight because of all of us uh, crowdsourced volunteers pulling the weeds out there. But the point is that transparency and the release of raw data helps to drive then a culture of participation, of loving that data, of doing things with it that allow us to actually uh, generate real value and meaning in people's lives. So the participation has had, of course, uh, new forms that, of course, will seem completely, you know, almost standard and rote by the standards of Silicon Valley. But you have to understand that when we came in and created the White House Open Government Initiative, this was the first blog that took comments. Not that there really is a blog without comments, but uh, this is the first commenting site that we ever had on a White House website. The first blog in government only began in 2008 from, of all places, the TSA. So things that we take for granted here as totally standard and will, I think, in another few months take for granted as totally standard even within government has for such a long time not at all been the case. So the president's interactive YouTube question time that he did a few weeks ago the Department of Labor uh, rolling out its regulatory agenda, for example, or its budget uh, using web chat. And you would say, gee, the Department of Labor's regulatory agenda, you know, probably 99% of people in the audience here think snooze, but 1% of people in this audience, and that's the notion of distributed expertise and enthusiasm, think this is fantastic. And in fact, 1,500 live participants watch the budget rollout, and 6,000 people have since watched the videos archived but not live, and that's compared to 100 or 200 people who could participate in these meetings live when they took place in a room in Washington previously. And so, in fact, if we look at things, for example, like uh, NASA, think about NASA Ames Research Center, which is only about 35 miles south of here in Silicon Valley. So what NASA has done um, is NASA has really embraced this concept of citizen participation and coined the term participatory exploration, space exploration. Um, so they have been convening gatherings of Silicon Valley professionals and NASA experts to discuss how to use new tools and to create community as a way of building participation. And they began employing crowdsourcing methodologies and advocating for more programs that would engage the public. And this year in their FYL fiscal year 11 budget um, have received the modest amount, but it's an amount nonetheless of $5 million to spend on their new participatory exploration office. 
Um, and this is exciting because it really creates, it highlights the opportunities that exist for people to work together again to really achieve goals that happens when you marry transparency and participation. So this is just one of, again, a thousand examples that I could give you. Um, and I've stolen here a phrase that Stuart used uh, earlier in the day with me, the notion of ensuring that there are no, when we put the data out there and let people look at it, they find the gaps, they find the dragons, they find the missing spaces, they see the patterns and they see the consequences of that data, but it's and they're able to make the visualizations, to make the games, to make the iPhone apps that actually turns transparency, raw data and information into useful knowledge. And when we have that, then in turn, we can create more informed processes of participation in policy making. So of actually involving people in government decision making. So when we created the White House Open Government Initiative, the first thing we did was to open up the question, what should our open government policy be to the American people using a series of online tools and techniques? The Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs within the Office of Management and Budget has created now a regulatory dashboard, which I really commend to you to go look at. It's in brand new and it's in its first instance and iteration, but it's trying to put out information about how government make reg makes regulations. And lest we think that legislation is where the action is at. We pass about 400 pieces of legislation a year. We're making between 4,000 and 8,000 rules every year. It's the executive branch agencies. That's where a lot of the detailed work of implementing, of implementing legislation actually takes place. So it's these efforts of actually creating open policy-making forums. The Office of Science and Technology Policy has for the last several weeks run a forum to ask what should our policy actually be on public access to government-funded research. Uh, we've run a forum on web cookies that's now used public input to help uh, decide what our policy should be on the use of cookies um, on government websites. It's, the, it's all this whole series, and I could go on, of new open policy-making initiatives that are being spawned. And what with the release of the Open Government Directive, one of the things that it has created is that every single government agency, in fact, now, has turned around to create its own open government web page. So you can go to epa.gov slash open or dot.gov slash open. And there you can actually provide input on the open government plan. So every agency is running um, an idea scale. They're using a, a product called IdeaScale, which is an ideation platform, a brainstorming platform, to actually generate ideas for how to make the agency more open. The citizen engagement tool has been live for about 25 days, and I, say, I have to confess I don't think we've done a good enough job of letting people know that the opportunity exists. This is, the, I think, the most historic opportunity. It is government-wide open participation in policymaking. We do have about 1,200 ideas that have been posted across the federal government about how to become more open and more participatory. But we need more, and we need everybody, whatever their issue of interest, to come in and say, I care about seeing this data set released, or here is how I think the agency should be more participatory, or here are ways in which we could be more collaborative, or just to get involved. Because it's only by getting involved that the message will go and get to these institutions that we want participation, that we want transparency, that it matters to people and that if we build it, they will in fact come. If we build the open institutions, people will come and get involved and participate. So I'll just give you another example from NASA, again from, from Ames here, is in the NASA website, um, under the, on their IdeaScale site, someone posted the idea, the top idea there was for NASA-sponsored space-themed bar camps. 
very West Coast idea. Um, and the ideas that people posted can be commented on by other users. And so someone put in the comment field that, in fact, there is the first space-themed bar camp was going to be taking place last weekend in San Diego called Space Up. I don't know if anybody was there. Anybody attend Space Up? Um, well, NASA saw the posting, and they saw the comment, and they got on a plane, and they went out to San Diego, and they sponsored the event, and they showed up, and they participated in the weekend and worked with the community of interest in actually developing the ideas that then came out of Space Up. Now, Space Up would have happened whether NASA showed up or participated or not. But because there was this real collaboration, this true participation between the institution and the network, that wonderful things emerged and that, again, the community of practice was really fostered. One of the ways we're doing this, again, is by enabling participation through platforms. So data.gov is helping to ensure that when agencies want to put up their data, they have a place to put it. When you want to find data, you have a place to go to search for it. Well, the, gov the uh, Government Services Administration, the General Services Administration, excuse me, GSA, which provides pens and pencils and cars and buildings to the federal government, also provides software tools. And they have negotiated now 165 new so-called government-friendly, in other words, they have the requisite privacy provisions and accessibility provisions, uh, new social media platforms, and that's just since November. And so this allows any agency that wants to use Facebook or YouTube or Google Analytics or social text or Bing search API to then just essentially pull it off of apps.gov. So if you're out there and you're a developer or you're an entrepreneur and you have a tool, whether free or fee, submit it to apps.gov. It's, by the way, a lot faster than going through a traditional procurement, and it makes it available to anyone in government who wants to use it. And I highly recommend combining it then with a um, video, a screencast, that actually shows people how and why they should use your tool. But we desperately need access to the tools and technologies that will allow us to do more and better participation. So finally, the last prong of the agenda is collaboration. Transparency, fairly obvious participation. Collaboration intentionally having a third prong to the agenda. It's not the same as participation because it's not just about how you get involved in government, but how, in fact, government can in turn push out problems and challenges and ideas to people and let them and invite them to engage in new ways than we've ever done before. And so that's the notion both of connecting government institutions to government institutions. So you heard about this Open 311 project that launched yesterday where San Francisco has really been um, at the forefront and together collaboratively with the White House and the federal government and creating a community of state and local government organizations that are actually involved in sharing code, in sharing tools, and working together to create uh, common data standards that will allow for the development of new and better software applications and software services like 311 services that can be adopted then and spread to any city so that citizens get better services like 311 across the nation. It's also a way to connect government employees to one another to again solve problems more effectively. So you may or may not know that now the Army writes its field manual using uh, Wikimedia. And then, in fact, uh, not you or I, but all soldiers, in fact, can participate in, and hundreds are doing so, to write the Army Field Manual of Practice so that the people who actually know are helping to write uh, the rules of the road for people in the military. 
And just last week, the Department of Defense, in fact, uh, unveiled its new social media policy going further, frankly, than the civilian agencies at allowing the use of any kind of social media uh, within limits. Um, and that's leading, of course, to now the creation of this Apps for Democracy effort, excuse me, the Apps for Army, or A4A project, um, another apps development challenge that the Army itself is running to develop skills, uh, excuse me, to, to uh, foster the development of software uh, skills and programming skills, um, but to develop m applications and tools that are actually useful to people in the military. The Veterans Benefit Administration and the VA have actually been at the forefront of this idea of collaboratively connecting employees to employees using a tool called Kindling. They've been running a competition initially to invite employees to come up with ideas for how to reduce the backlog of veterans benefits claims. And in the first week, 7,000 out of 19,000 employees, 7,000 of them participated in submitting ideas, 3,000 ideas suggested in the first month of the competition. Ideas, for example, like the Pittsburgh uh, VA regional office that suggested the idea that we could actually l lessen the backlog if veterans took a form with them when they went to the doctor, a standard form that would allow standardized medical questionnaire that could be completed by the treating physician that would then facilitate and streamline the process of applying for benefits so that the diagnosis and treatment by the physician didn't in then in turn have to be translated into another form and another piece of paperwork. And that was so successful, this process, that now the VA has launched another uh, similar ideation brainstorming process, if you will, um, to try to uh, uh, crowdsource the, uh, how uh, the VA can actually improve its uh, health IT um, and healthcare IT-related uh, systems within the VA. So again, this idea is really taking off, and there now has been created in government an ideation community of practice. Um, all the agencies who are interested in running brainstorming initiatives, the first meeting that we ran, purely informal, totally voluntary, pouring rain on the day that we held it, 60 people show up from 30 agencies. And that's all people who are about to start, want to start, want to know how to do this kind of open, collaborative brainstorming. Danny Hillis, who of course is part of the, one of the founding members of Long Now, is the creator of a tool called Aristotle. Aristotle that's now being deployed across the Defense Department. It's essentially Facebook for scientists and uh, technologists across the DOD to connect them to one another. So as to hear the uh, uh, sort of um, progenitor of the project within the um, Navy who has been spearheading the implementation tells me you know that instead of actually l discovering after the fact that the guy at the next desk to you has the expertise that you need to figure out how to solve the problem of dust getting into the helicopter blades of the that's that's bringing down helicopters in Afghanistan and to only discover after the fact that the guy at the next desk actually flew those helicopters for nine years before he held that desk job when you discover that after the fact there's something wrong that you should be able to know that before the fact which is why Aristotle is being used now across the DOD to connect S&T professionals, but we need far more of these kinds of expert tools, expert networking tools, to allow us to do our job better. Collaboration like the Federal Regulations 2.0 project, which is an example of connecting public to private. So not just government to government and government employees, but public to private, so that when the National Archives and Records Administration decides that it will take the Federal Register, the newspaper of our democracy, the newspaper that essentially records the actions of the federal government every single day, something it used to sell for $17,000 per subscription. 
and decides that we will give it away because this is data that belongs to the American people and is a national public asset, and we shouldn't be selling it. <laughs> data that has been created with your taxpayer dollars, with my dollars. Instead, we release this and publish it. What happens? Well, what happens is the folks from GovPulse, who I think are here in the audience, here on the West Coast, are you here? There they are. Um, or Public Resource, who also come here from Sebastopol, turn around and rebuild, oh, are you, there we go. <laughs> a fan, a fan, a fan of Carl Malvin in the front row. Um, turn around and recreate this, this is what the Federal Register looks like, and turn it into this. So they create, this is one made by Princeton, uh, there's GovPulse at the top that actually allows you to search rules and regs by uh, geography, so show me the rules that apply only to, the, to me in Indiana or the FedThread project, which allows me to annotate and have a conversation about what's going on in government, something that we absolutely can't do with this. Or the, this project, uh, the public resource project, that actually creates hyperlinks within the document so that when a rule references another rule or a piece of legislation, I can actually understand the context for something that I'm looking at. These projects created in one week. Uh, after the release of the data set. So some of them had been worked on up until then, but the, the change that we could make happen so quickly through public-private collaboration, or in turn, not by connecting public and private, but by getting out of the way and connecting citizens to one another. Endorsing and inspiring and talking about and celebrating a project like National Lab Day. Everybody here, I'm sure, rep remembers Net Day, yes? So think Net Day for school science labs. And when this project launched, and again, a project that from start to start to launch was a matter of weeks, months at most, had signed up organizations representing two million members, engineers, scientists, and technologists who were volunteering to go into America's schools to do hands-on learning with our high school and middle school students to ensure that we are not last in science but first. Um, or a project like broadbandmatch.gov that the um, NTIA has set up to allow applicants for $7.2 billion in broadband grant funds to find one another. It's a kind of match.com for grant applicants to say, I'm a small grantee and you're a big grantee. Let's get together and write a good application. Um, and so this idea of helping to connect citizens to citizens is one of the, I think, the most important things that we can and are trying to do to move the culture shift forward. So let me just close. Um, by saying a little bit finally about how we, what we how we've done this and and where we go from here, um, people have to know what's being asked of them. That's I think what's in common to all of these projects is the better job that we can do, and we have a long way to go to learn how to do that of articulating the problem, articulating the question, and then explaining to people what we need their help with and how to do it the easier it will be for people to get involved and to, uh, and to participate. In the same way that in the campaign, we understood what it meant to phone bank or to drive someone to the polls or to get out the vote or to donate money. We now need similarly to chunk the questions, to chunk the work so that people in the process of governance uh, can get involved in policy-making processes, not just in elections now, but in actually how we make decisions on an ongoing basis um, to affect this kind of change. And as I alluded to before, I think that visualization and the use of the interface, we could have a whole other long now presentation about the way that the visual interface is powerful at helping us to do this. So one of the simple things that we've done is to set up on the White House website 
something called the Open Government Innovations Gallery, in which we post cool ideas, cool projects that are going on in government as a way to inspire other people to follow the lead. So again, TSA, the first uh, entity to create um, what they called Idea Factory, which was one of these idea generation tools. And you'll see an example here uh, of the, this is a, the tool that they've created to allow their employees to make suggestions for how to improve the functioning of airport security. Um, then we could take a poll about whether we think this is working or not. I think it actually is. Um, here was an idea posted for respectful divesting bins, and I don't know if you can read if you can read the small print, but I'll let you guess what that actually refers to in terms of um, security at the airport. But think uh, grandma's ashes. Um, and this is um, this system, which is not only about generating ideas, but then taking money and investing the ideas that in that employees suggest is now, as I've talked about, spreading all across the government. But what we're doing is, the way it's spreading is by people being able to see what other people are doing and emulate their example, share code, share best practices, and share knowledge. So this only works, though, if you, if we all get involved, if we all help. If you adopt a data set, so, you know, it's like adopt a highway, adopt a data set, find some data to love, to mash up, to visualize, to create an iPhone app from, to build a tool around, to build a business with. We need people to use the data to tell us what data needs to be released because, frankly, the government sits on huge amounts of information and we can't release it all at once. We're committed, though, to making it openly available in downloadable, open formats uh, online in as real time as we can do it. But we need your help with prioritizing what we do first and what we do second. And so we need your ideas for what to do in terms of data, how to save money, how to green the government, how to better encourage and facilitate citizen engagement and participation, um, and how to facilitate the kind of collaboration that we've talked about. So I think what we're talking about here is not the world of participation that we've known it, in other words, a world of voting where everybody does the same thing come November election time, but where you may want to love a data set from the EPA and I might want to help the Department of Transportation with how it does citizen engagement and a third person wants to participate in reviewing a patent application. We don't all want to do the same thing, but the equality of opportunity is what's important by creating and proliferating lots of different opportunities for engagement driven by transparency and availability of raw data uh, that we can take advantage of so that everybody has a way to get involved in something that feeds and inspires their passion, their expertise, and their enthusiasm. And what's really going on here, I think, is, um, is just an interim step. It's a big and long interim step to remake and overhaul the way that our federal government works to create these kinds of open institutions. But it is only an interim step on, I think, a much longer evolutionary trajectory that really will devolve power downward to us and to the associations and organizations and groups of which we are a part in radically new ways that in a long time from now won't look like the representative, of gov the representative government we know today, but will come to look like something very different when more federal government institutions start to collaborate with the gov pulses and the fed threads of the world or to support the national lab day initiatives um, or that work with a hundred different companies on developing commitments to investing in STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, this is all then the future that the net is enabling of allowing us to create increasingly powerful, purposive groups. 
groups that can come up with new ideas, sometimes rewarded with prizes, um, or other types of incentives that help us to solve problems in new ways. And so technology is increasingly enabling ordinary people now to come together across distances to do these things, to do these increasingly important work, whether on a local level or now at scale on a national level, to get involved in bringing their collective wisdom to bear and bringing their collective talent to bear to actually change the way that we work. And this is fundamentally, as uh, the political philosopher Hannah Arendt wrote, it's fundamentally about power. Because power, as she said, corresponds to the human ability not just to act, but to act in concert. Power is never the property of an individual. It belongs to a group and remains in existence only so long as the group keeps together. So when we set our minds to something and we work in concert to make it happen, we are very powerful. And working together, we can accomplish things that we cannot do alone. And that means, that implies that our political institutions have to evolve to recognize this new reality of power, have to evolve to, to enable us to work together, to help us collectively to solve the increasingly complex problems that we face. But in turn, we have to step up to the task. We have to demand this of our institutions. We have to demand it of ourselves. So that, and we have to get involved, and we have to take action, and the opportunity exists now like it never has before, with an administration that is 150% committed to an agenda of openness, of transparency, of participation, of collaboration, of creating this concept of uh, recognizing the power and the intelligence and the expertise of individuals, of trusting the American public, and of, as the President says, bringing all hands on deck to the problems that we face today. So with that, let me stop and uh, invite discussion. And it's been really a pleasure to have an opportunity to talk to you today about what we're trying to do here to re-engineer, reinvent uh, our government, and over the long term, I think, uh, and hope, reinvent our democracy as we know it today. Thank you. There. Let's go over the stools. It's okay. taller than I am. <laughs> <laughs> You're not allowed to sell your book outside, I understand. <laughs> so I have to say that uh, <laughs> Beth has is, is done a great book called uh, Wiki Government. Yes. And I think it's okay if I ask you and you say what's in it. That doesn't violate any government regulations. <laughs> now you have me on the spot. I can't say no. Uh, so, Wiki Government is a Wiki Government um, is a book that covers a lot of the ideas that have gone into this open government initiative, um, and really covers both this question of how we, from a legal and policy perspective, re-engineer our institutions, but also technologically, what it means to take advantage of the visual interface. How do we design the tools? Um, so, it's a book that both covers the technical side, if you will, the aesthetic side, and the legal and policy side of how we actually think about reinventing our institutions as institutions of collaborative democracy. Um, so in fact, I've had the dubious um, distinction or misfortune, depending on how you look at it, um, to have written the book and then taken the job now to implement the ideas in the book. So everywhere in the book it says, the government should do the, and now I'm going, oh God. <laughs> uh, now that's my problem. So it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, and daunting problem to have. Remember the uh, Office of Technology Assessment that Congress used to have? 
94, and one of the first things that Newt Gingrich did, I think, was yes. erase that from existence. <laughs> um, I realize this is not something the administration can do directly, but is there hope of getting Congress back with its own ability to pay attention to what's going on with technology with something like the OTA? Well, I'll tell you there are two, two, two parts to that. One is I think this president, um, surely in contrast to the last eight years, but I think more than any president you know, in 50 years, uh, if ever, is so committed to science, is so committed to the importance of science education um, and to an innovation agenda to, the, uh, to, the, to this country. Um, he has, you know, we have increased our budgets for science R&D. Um, we have invested in STEM education. You may know that the Department of Education has a race to the top fund, this competitive grant fund for the states, that the one preference that it gives is to states that actually have a science education component to their applications. So I would like to think that by example we uh, set an agenda, I think, for the importance of science. And of course the appointment of um, stellar scientists like Stephen Chu, uh, like John Holder, into the roles that they're in really sends a signal, I hope, about the importance of good quality science and what we do. But what I would also add to that is our, our efforts to try to create greater expert networking, things like the Aristotle Project that connect S&T professionals across the DOD and now efforts to do similar things in the civilian agencies, efforts to look at how do we actually connect with networks of scientists and experts outside of government as well, is I think also based in a recognition that science matters and that we need to have that kind of participatory assessment function that the OTA gave us um, we need we can re enliven that in an era of networks you know on steroids if you will um, that will allow us to get better scientific expertise into the way that we make decisions you know better than even the OTA so I hope that that's something we can do across branches um, but we have to start at least with our own shop sounds right uh, from Laura Erickson where are you this question given that the defense budget makes up nearly half of the total budget how does the concept and practice apply to DOD? Since the outlays for national security have such a large impact on everything else, this is of paramount importance for an individual or a group's political life. Absolutely. Well, it's why I think um, one of, you know, the, the data.gov project, the platform to enable the release of government data and to make it more searchable and accessible, is a platform that's been created across the CIO community in government, including by the DOD CIO, Dave Wenigren, who's been an active part of that team. Um, and it's why the, DO, the DOD and the, both the defense and the intelligence agencies have been actively involved in the projects from the beginning. Um, because we have to, of course, in everything that we do when we talk about open government, we do, of course, have to balance that with the demands of national security, also of personal privacy um, is key. But I think no one in many ways has been at the forefront more uh, and you may perhaps find this ironic, is in many ways the Defense Department. Um, with the release of its social media policy, with the launch of something like Aristotle, it's the furthest ahead in the use of social networking and social media in many respects. Now, issues of other kinds of transparency and whatnot um, may be further behind for some people's liking, um, and that's where, again, we sort of have to uh, um, balance the demands of national security against the demands of transparency to ensure that we're doing transparency in smart ways. Um, but I think, you know, the Defense Department has really been arm in arm with many of these initiatives moving forward. They also have an open government page. So if there are things you want to see, and I'm sure there's a long list, um, that's, a, that's the place to say we want these data sets, we want to see engagement in this way, uh, and here's how we want people to get, you know, we want to create more openness in the DOD. Okay, that's another kind of managerial question from Adrian, looks like Cotter. 
how are the various bureaucracies responding? Are they taking the long view? Uh, and how is the data vetted, and how are the bureaus uh, held accountable in all this? Oh, big question. Um, so how are people responding? So the cu culture shift is, of course, um, you know, it's a hard... It'll be an interesting thing to look back and reflect on um, how this has worked in different agencies, and we've been talking about what's the documentation process for even just filming um, and telling the stories of how some of this change has taken place, which I think is a really interesting journalistic opportunity. Uh, and some agencies are further along than others. So partly all that we're doing is unleashing and opening up um, opportunities for innovators that have long sat within these organizations and institutions. So it's not just short-term political leadership that's creating it, but it's unleashing the power of the people who've been there for the long haul and the long term who know the best in many cases how to fix what's broken. Um, and so it's unleashing those people and their enthusiasm and their ideas that's, I think, been the most rewarding. Um, and it's so much fun to talk to people who say, gee, I've been waiting 10 years to do X, um, or I've so long wanted to do Y. So there is a lot of receptivity, I think, to this process of change, particularly where, again, it's sort of balancing that short-term burst of enthusiasm with what can we do today to make change happen against that kind of longer-term vision. But it's also hard. There is a lot of institutionalized resistance to the notion that people have been told for a long time data shouldn't be open or free, and now we're saying let's put it up online and let's make it available and let's make it searchable. This is hard for a lot of people to do. We have huge backlogs on things like FOIA where we now have a lot What's of... What's FOIA? Oh, Freedom of Information Act, excuse mm -hmm. me. So the traditional process by which people have filed requests for information, um, which in many cases uh, have gone unanswered for a long time and therefore have you know, just created huge paper backlogs and requesting information that people, even if they want to make it available, can't find it because it's in a shoebox somewhere. Um, so I think that there is, you know, this is a, uh, it's a really a mixed bag where there's a great deal of enthusiasm both from the bottom and from the top um, and a lot of difficulty because of just institutionalized inertia that's, we haven't had the practice of doing it, we haven't had the tools to do it before and in many cases, you know, again, remember the first blog in 2008. So if people want to do something like create a blog or, you know, it's in many cases a huge lift for them to figure out how to do this within the strictures of government procurement practices, of, um, of rules about who can speak and who can't speak, and just questions about are we allowed to do this that people aren't used to doing. Um, but I think there's a real kind of contagion, at least from where I sit, that uh, seems to be catching fire. And the great part about this is, again, keep in mind, data.gov created by the agency CIOs, not by the White House. The open government plans created by every agency, not by the Office of Management and Budget. And the reporting requirement under the open government directive is not to the Office of Management and Budget, it's to the American people. You must put this up on the web and make it available to your constituents, not to some small office within the White House. So in, that's the hope is that we bring about distributed change um, through a process of uh, creating enthusiasm and contagion and really just catalyzing the desire for innovation that already exists. You keep saying the American people, the Internet doesn't really have an international boundary, <laughs> so presumably there's uh, fair a point. fair amount of, uh, you know, certainly observation and maybe also participation from people outside the borders. Uh, are we, how are you with that? How are we, we well, is it good or bad if uh, I'm, you gave a Haiti example, and so you know we're sort of engaging with Haiti, and that starts to soften that border. But you know, English speakers all over the world are they participating in the U.S. government? 
so sure if you have i mean if it's a, if you have a good idea for how to solve a problem and you mm -hmm. aren't in new jersey but you're in croatia then uh, if it solves my problem i'm thrilled to hear from you um so this this is you know to the point about uh, Croatia comes to mind somehow because America's Army, you may recall this video game that was created, was most played by people in Croatia, even though it was designed to help the Army identify recruits for the U.S. Army. So if you were really had really good pointing skills, uh, they would call you up and say, would you like to join? Um, it turned out that all the, player, the best players in Croatia, but that's an aside. Um, <laughs> Some of whom probably immigrated and are now in the military, right? <laughs> Entirely possible. Um, so that's exactly the point. I mean, the communities, you know, the use of the term the American people is an artifact of my now working in Washington. We like to talk about the American people. Right, right. Um, it is the, it are the, those are the people who actually pay, pay our salaries and whom we are in, here to serve. Um, but, of course, we are a part of a world community, and that's where these, I think, more networked, approaches, in fact, help us evolve towards um, the new kind of government that we will see, if we're talking long-term now, that will not respect the kind of national sovereign boundaries that we know today. Um, so I think that's a, that's a slightly longer-term vision, but that's what we're here to do. Well, this relates to a question from Kevin Kelly. Are there any national governments anywhere that are role models for you? And I guess the other part of that question is, are, is, are your activities starting to be a role model for other national governments. Absolutely. So a lot of this, the thinking about kind of participatory engagement and involvement comes out of Europe. It doesn't come from the United States. So if we think about the sort of participatory worker mm. culture that developed in the Scandinavian countries in the 70s, um, I think that has been some of the inspiration. I think also there are institutionalized practices, you know, more in theory than in practice in terms of their success at using citizen engagement and participation that European countries have long recognized that have had. A, if you look at media policy, for example, and the way that it's created in Europe, it, all media policy in these, you know, public media systems have a citizen engagement component to them. Again, they've not worked as well in practice, but the notion, at least in theory, of um, involving citizens in decision-making has been around for quite a number of years uh, as a way in theory of improving the way that political institutions work. Now, in terms of who's really at the forefront of doing, doing open government, um, England, uh, Australia, a lot of the English-speaking countries, when it comes to better service delivery and what we sometimes think about as e-government, using technology to ensure that you can pay your taxes faster or pay your parking tickets faster. Um, Singapore, uh, of course, has been in the lead on this for a long time. So in terms mm. of understanding how to use technology to do more efficient government, mm. um, there are several countries, Canada and Singapore, from whom we've done a lot of learning. But I do have to say, and this has in part mm. to do with the appeal and the star power and the popularity and the brilliance of our president, uh, and I'm totally biased in this regard, that his, um, the fact that he stands for this agenda is, I think, helping a great deal to spread the concept of open government to governments at the state and local level in this country and abroad and elsewhere that's really kind of catching fire. And the moment is now. You know, it's, this is, we live in a certain technical, technological time in which the notion, as I said earlier, you know, this is, we're transforming the music industry and the publishing industry and journalism. It's only about time that uh, our political institutions might uh, be infected with the same fever. Okay, a couple of questions on, uh, in a sense, values of non-openness. Janet Crane asks, it has been proposed that the more egalitarian and transparent Congress becomes, the less able they are to pass far-sighted legislation. Uh, deals aren't made in front of TV cameras, yeah. and politicians become locked into publicly pronounced partisan positions. Please comment. In relation to that, 
Kevin Kelly asks, is there a role for secrecy, non-transparency in a collaborative democracy? Is there a mechanism for determining when the call for secrecy is correct and when it's just an excuse? Hmm. So two, two versions two there. Versions one is deals are made in back rooms. Right. Well, this was one of the complaints after gov the Government and the Sunshine Act was passed uh, that provided for uh, openness of meetings of senior government leaders is two things happened. One is m people stopped having meetings. They did deals over lunch. And the other is that uh, people at one level below, the people who weren't covered by the law, that's where the actually dealing would get done because it didn't, wasn't uh, subject to the same uh, strictures. So the question is when you mandate transparency, does it force certain dealings into the back room inevitably because people do need a certain degree of um, uh, deliberative privacy, if you will. And I have to say, I think that's, you know, it's absolutely true. If you, if you look at, I'll give you another ex example that in, in an attempt at avoiding to answer this very hard question. Um, <laughs> the Federal Advisory Committee Act is what directs the constitution of what are called federal advisory committees. There are about a thousand of them that provide largely scientific expertise to government mm -hmm. agencies. There are about 65,000 experts who serve the government, and you've heard about these more in the context of the abuse of these committees in the last administration where they were stacked with industry representatives and lobbyists instead of with um, experts, scientific experts in the field. Um, is the creation of these are governed by the Federal Advisory Committee Act, which is intended to provide greater transparency and sunlight about their dealings. So everything that they do is totally open, and the proceedings are open, and the public is invited to come in um, for the most part. And a lot of people complain that they can't get anything done when they're under the microscope because people are afraid to appear stupid. Um, they're afraid, I mean, either they're grandstanding for the cameras, that's the partisan political mm -hmm. comment, but even in these other contexts, they're afraid to just have a conversation and really try to arrive at some kind of um, consensus. It's also the question that you know, we've debated as we start to think about putting visitor logs up online, putting travel schedules up online, putting meetings up online, webcasting. You know, at what point does it become counterproductive because you spend so much time um, being open and not enough time actually getting your job done. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is, we are feeling our way towards the right answer of what will allow people to continue to be productive in their day-to-day -day work. Um, we face this, for example, in our office where we wanted to put every meeting that we, public meeting that we did online, but if every time I see somebody, do I need to put that online or not, or am I spending then all the time, or you know, hiring so many interns, frankly, um, to put all that stuff up online that I never get anything else done. Um, so I think that there is a balance between what is productive and what is not, and we have to definitely just feel our way towards the right answer in many cases. So we've started with things like uh, lobbying reform and ensuring that when, we, when we're talking to lobbyists, that there we're much more open and we're declaring when those meetings are taking place um, than just when we're going, you know, to lunch with our colleagues or whatnot. So these are hard questions to which we don't entirely have the answer. We know that something's not functioning right now, um, and the, you know, bickering kind of internecine political fighting that, in, you know, I don't think simply has to do with the cameras, but has to do with the financing of our political system and the short-term, you know, nature of our electoral cycles, um, and therefore the grandstanding for the cameras that takes place. This is all related, but uh, I think it's a hard problem of institutional redesign that we just have to grapple with. How about secrecy? Kevin Kelly uh, raises his point that you know, lots of times secrecy is an excuse to um, 
make various things happen, not just around intelligence and defense department. The you know, national security requires that, that we don't uh, let you know that whatever happened. Right. And that's such an easy thing to do. Well, I don't. So first, there are real cases of there are real national security issues and problems, and the threats are very real. I sit in an office that has bomb blast curtains to catch the glass for when somebody blows up my building. Um, so the, the sense of danger is, you know, and the, and the notion of danger is very real, and the threat to our virtual networks as well as our physical plant is serious. So we do have to take it seriously, um, very much so. But as an excuse, you know, I think this is part of the cultural shift that we're undergoing. It is much easier now to say, national security, sorry. Um, but as we begin to see this contagion spreading, and we are requiring every agency to go down the path of at least inventorying its information and talking about what information it's not going to release, uh, and we start to make it more regular practice and status quo to put information on online and reward the people who put the information online, oh. we begin to create a culture. Um, so by doing things like showcasing them on the, you know, create, you know, the, 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 you know that on the West Coast, all you have to do is give people a T-shirt, right? And then mm -hmm. they um, will do anything for you. So we haven't quite learned that in Washington yet. Um, but we do put them on the White House website and showcase the work that they do. We do have award ceremonies. We do now have, as part of the Open Government Directive, one of the things that we're doing is looking at how do we institutionalize the process of giving prizes in government so that we have the legal basis to actually give people prizes and recognition for the work that they're doing. Um, so I think it's by creating a positive culture around transparency that we begin to make it more and more difficult to use secrecy as an excuse. And the best thing is, is that once we put things out there, it becomes very difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. That's the hope, is that once you make it available, you can't then stop the spigot of data flowing. If you're releasing that economic information today, you can't stop doing it tomorrow without raising a uh, hue and cry. So, you know, a, an evolutionary process, but again, it's where the Open Government Directive specifically says that agencies are to release data in response to public demand. So if you don't ask for it, you won't see it happen as fast as you would like. So don't complain, you know, get involved. Actually, do complain. Is what yes, do complain, exactly. <laughs> now, I've heard you design a t-shirt today. You wanted to have a t-shirt that says, I heart data. <laughs> yes, and, I'm... And you had a, a line in your slides that love data lasts longer. What's that about? <laughs> so you, you're, that's, do you want to tell us what that's about? I stole that from you. So the, um, I'm curious to see what you're going to do with it. <laughs> well, this is the, the mashing up, right? So the, um, the notion love data lasts longer is, again, the, this idea that if we put the data out there, it's one thing to make raw data available. But raw data by itself isn't that interesting. It's data that's loved by somebody. Um, it's, you know, the, uh, somehow the George of data, if you will. Um, I'll love it, I'll squeeze it, I'll hold it. What's that uh, Bugs Bunny line? Um, that uh, I'm not allowed to use an illusion that I can't remember the, the words to. I'm so jet-lagged that uh, I should not have gone down that road. But um, uh, the notion that uh, if we actually embrace the data sets and use it to make the kinds of mashups that are being done by Stamen Design, I see you guys sitting over there, and if you actually turn around and take the crime data from uh, Oakland and from San Francisco and turn around and make it visual and visible so that people can see the conditions in their own neighborhoods. That's the loving that data. And frankly, that is a labor of love that has gone into creating these kinds of volunteer projects that we turn around and we actually take the data, the raw data from our healthcare system. And HHS is putting out more and more data every day now. 
Um, and we turn around and use that to create visualizations of comparative effectiveness of our healthcare system so that we can understand why does a hip replacement cost more in one community than it does in another that allows us to then understand better how to create greater efficiencies in our healthcare system. It's that kind of loving of the data um, that we need to do that not all of us can do or want to do, um, but that actually help us make more informed political decisions that may help us make uh, 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 you know, our political system work better for all of us. So that's what I mean by love data. What do you mean by love data? <laughs> uh, just that, uh, uh, hmm. You can say the part of why, why it the, lasts The original longer. pioneering video games uh, have been kept alive by people who started to love them when they were young. And they've developed emulators online where you can play Pong or whatever the hell it is, uh, even though it's you know 16 <laughs> platforms later. And that's a case of basically a public adopting a thing and then keeping it alive indefinitely just by using it and loving it. So I have to tell you, I own an island in Second Life. My institute owns an island in Second Life and called Democracy Island. It will not surprise you. And our developers had the most wonderful idea that every year we would just take the island and we'll float it above the island and then we'll create a new island underneath. And so we will have a vertical historical record of the space that you could traverse much like these sort of, uh, you can do on your Mac desktop, but we've created a, or I think we've envisioned doing this, a 3D layer of, uh, of physical virtual space. Instead of up in the air, how about down in the water? So it's kind of a, a series of Atlantises that you discover as you go in. I don't think there are Second Life underground prims. There are above ground prims, but not. Un I don't think you can terraform Let's down. Let's push for that. Demand up. underground. There okay. you go. All right, two just-a-damn-minute questions from John Gilmore. Um, he said, one is, if science matters, why does Obama's department, uh, DOJ, argue that the Data Quality Act doesn't allow citizens to challenge and correct incorrect data and facts that have policy implications? And how can the U.S. government claim any transparency at all when it enacts, hides, and enforces secret laws? Most of TSA's rules are not only secret, but they actively lie to the public about what they say. For example, you must show photo ID to fly. <laughs> that was a predictable question from John. The, um, so to the, what was the first one? The first one, oh, DOJ and the, oh, data quality. Um, doesn't allow citizens to challenge and correct incorrect data and facts. So we, I have to know a little bit more about what the question is because, in fact, data quality, uh, at least under this administration, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the Office of Management and Budget, which has authority to enforce the Data Quality Act, um, is a huge driver, essentially. It's, a, in, in fact, one of the slowdowns, if you will, of getting data up online is, uh, is you know, and the perfect can be the enemy of the, of the good, is to um, inspect the data, make sure the data quality is good, and to provide now, though, a public feedback mechanism on data.gov for issues of data quality. So in other words, you can go on and say, I found a problem with this data set. And so we have created a participatory mechanism for enforcing data quality and challenging the quality of data sets. But this is a brand new initiative. I mean, it's just since May, last May, that we started doing this of creating an open vehicle for providing these kinds of challenges to data quality so that you don't have to go to court. Because you may know that the Data Quality Act was in some, this is a, you know, kind of debatable point among legal academics, but in many cases has been used in the last number of years to hold up the regulatory process. So to allow uh, large companies to challenge the scientific validity of data as a way to prevent regulation from going forward. So what we've tried to do is in order to not open up the floodgates of lit litigation, 
is to create an open mechanism using the web to actually allow people to challenge the quality of data. And in turn, we have to turn that into a more participatory mechanism for reworking data sets, finding problems in them, et cetera. Um, there is, I want to commend to people, the concept of operations for data.gov, which is a, if you have the stomach for it, a 70-page document um, that is really quite detailed and wonderful that outlines uh, how data.gov works and where it's going from here. And it's open for public participation and comment, and particularly on these issues of data quality. OMB is very concerned to ensure that we do get this right. So there is a lot of openness and receptivity uh, to this. And as for TSA, um, and the uh, and the ID policy. Um, I, I recognize the uh, no. I know. I know about the battle over the. I know about this. This is legendary. Um, and I actually tried it. I have a newborn child, and so I'd wanted to see whether he had to show data when I, when he had to show data. He had to show I, uh, ID uh, when I flew uh, yesterday to get out here. But that's a so I was I did have your interest at heart when I tested. I assume this you implanted an RFID in him. That is <laughs> going to stick with him the rest the of his life. The question is whether right? TSA assumed that I planted a bomb in him instead. <laughs> right. But the uh, uh, so the, you know again there is now a very open, highly receptive. Uh, um, uh, you know, opportunity now to re-raise these questions, um, to discuss them again, and to do them in an open way. So I wouldn't view that the practices and policies of the last eight years have to be the policies and the practices going forward. Um, so without speaking to the specifics of this issue, which is totally above my pay grade, um, the, uh, I, I do want to say that you know now is an opportunity to re-raise a lot of questions that may have been raised before, but we are in a new era. And TSA and uh, uh, DHS have a phenomenal new leadership. And among the agencies that are really at the forefront, you know, on the data, on dhs.gov slash open, uh, Janet Napolitano herself is there presenting the open government plan. I mean, it's one of the agencies where this, from the secretary on down, there is a lot of commitment to figuring out how to do openness uh, right within the agency. Here's a kind of a managerial question that has several levels to it. Mike, uh, uh, looks like Kuniofsky. How do you set up the incentives so that the people who participate in these online forums and so on are not just the angry ones who have a lot of time on their hands? <laughs> and, you know, that not only we see it in, you know, in every blog in the comments thereafter, but frankly, the public discourse is dominated uh, to a large extent by nitwits uh, a lot of the time. <laughs> You know, and, and if we can't fix one, how can we fix the other? I, I think they are connected. Uh, absolutely. And I don't want to sound, you know, in my responses, uh, excessively Pollyanna, if you can be excessively Pollyanna, about... Yes, um, you can. Yeah. Um, I, I want to sound uh, as enthusiastic as I am and as committed as I am to doing this, which is why you have to really believe in it uh, to get up every day and really do this and fight for this kind of culture shift uh, against a long historical, uh, uh, you know... Uh, period that precedes this one um, that has not believed in these, these sorts of values of openness. And we have the problem that not only do we have an institutionalized culture within government, but we have a civil society that has frankly gotten used to uh, the way that government operates, right? So we have a whole series of civil society organizations that have learned how to fight the power in the way that the power uh, was organized. Right? And so that's why what we're used to is our view of engagement is to give money to organizations that in turn lobby Congress because that's the way the system has worked and has called upon us to engage. And you have a lot of those organizations who I think are complicit in the process of excessively centralizing power because they want to build mailing lists and membership and organization um, because it's how they're used to working because it's 
you know, how the system has worked. So our level of civic discourse are, um, is, is problematical because we haven't had the maturation process that's allowed us to develop these sorts of skills yet. There is a sign on the door to my office. Um, my old one was taken down, and what it's replaced with is uh, Beth Novak, Director, Intergalactic Policy, Area 51. And the reason I earned this title is because when we launched the open government participatory engagement process, the, we said, how what's our open government policy be? And people said uh, that you should release the records on the UFOs that have landed. Um, so, and you should tell us where Obama's birth certificate is, and it's probably on a UFO somewhere. Um, so we got either the birthers or the UFO folks or the Kennedy conspiracy theorists, Kennedy assassination conspiracy theorists. We're all, on day one, that's who we heard from. Um, and so it was funny, but it was also sad at the same time. Um, but the what happened was, over the course of the evolution of that process, is by virtue of the fact that we're now using tools that allow communities to self-moderate their discussions and to do things like flag things that are off-topic and move them to another page, and that we have evolved our thinking in terms of uh, how this then relates to the First Amendment, um, because we're allowing people to self-moderate rather than government to censor that we actually then, uh, the community stepped up and began to moderate out those comments and that allowed when you moved away the weeds, the plants could grow um, and the community itself began to flourish and the relevant comments you know, emerged. And I think what we've seen then, the sort of uh, crazy people with them who were excited by having a whitehouse.gov megaphone in front of them began to recede into the background. But I think there is a larger question about how we evolve our civic culture to uh, match the challenge of our institutional culture at the same time. We see lots of it emerging within techie space, the people who are mm. doing crisis camps and doing hackathons and you know, going out and doing data mashups, but I think there's a long way for the, that to kind of trickle uh, through the rest of our culture. Hmm. Lots to be done. Hacker culture takes over government. That sounds interesting. <laughs> Tomorrow's headline, Washington Post, you senior government officials, to, you know, says I government said that. Now, what you learn about being in government is that if you can be misquoted, you will be. Right. Something. Plus, the name of everybody in the audience will also be in the Washington Post tomorrow, right? Um, Mark L. asks, corporations have as much power and control over our lives as government, if not more, yet they are largely allowed to operate in near total internal secrecy. How can we make them transparent in ways necessary for us to govern and interact safely with them? Yeah, good. How about it? Good question. All right. So the, so one thing is there's a kind of reciprocal thing going on here. So a lot of this kind of ideation, brainstorming stuff, we're learning from companies who do this. You know, it's the Netflix prizes of the world that where companies, there are some very successful companies that are embracing openness in, in the ways that they work. Now, to the point about spending transparency, the kind of fraud, waste, and abuse part of things, a lot of companies, are, most companies are very reluctant to do anything but that which is demanded of them by law in terms of opening themselves up. So the question is, how does this agenda then translate into uh, a stronger regulatory enforcement agenda, the creation of the kinds of protections, for example, the president having signed into law greater financial transparency, uh, greater transparency for credit card companies, mm -hmm. um, for banks, um, and the movement now towards greater consumer protection, the call now for a new consumer pr regulatory, consumer protection regulatory agency that will precisely uh, try to do exactly this. Um, so we have to see, you know, this is, I think, one of the things that we have to demand 
of our legislators, of our executive branch, of our government, and of our companies, um, that we do try to institute you know, greater transparency throughout all sectors of life. So here, here to the comment. Uh, ending with a kind of a long now question. How is policy of openness and transparency to main, be maintained past the political party um, swing that has occurred in every other uh, past exchange of terms and parties and so on back and forth? Um, so how, how do you embed this? Right, so something we're very conscious of because, uh, you know, in every administration, as I sort of alluded to but not explicitly enough, we, every attorney general comes out and promulgates a uh, rule on the Freedom of Information Act. And so from party to party, with change of parties, the rule on openness under the Freedom of Information Act has changed. And now under Attorney General Holder, uh, subsequent to the memorandum on open government, Holder comes out and says the default rule will be open. And not only that, but government agencies must proactively start working to put data up online. And we turn around in the Open Government Directive and say that that means online means in open accessible formats. So not locked up in proprietary formats, um, but made available openly for people to download and to mash up and to do things with. Um, but as I alluded to, I think just having a policy by itself is not enough because it changes with the political winds of time. But it's when you start putting the data sets out there, when you have a platform like data.gov where you can see and quantify and measure who's putting up what data and how many people are putting up what data. And we've created just now version 0.5 of the open government dashboard, which is intended to track the progress towards open government over time. Mm. I say 0.5 because right now it's tracking the, uh, it's tracking simply the basic requirements under the open government directive. Um, but we know that we are, you know, going to evolve this and are working across the agencies to develop uh, stretch criteria, if you will, bolder ways that we can actually measure our own progress of letting that genie out of the bottle. It's when you have the platforms like a data.gov or when you have every agency running an idea scale uh, open policymaking process that it becomes very difficult, I think, I hope, to undo these things. It's hard to turn the tap off once you've turned it on. Once you get people used to the concept of doing public engagement before they make a decision, it becomes hard then to stop doing that. Or then we need to start asking questions about why did you stop doing something that you started. And politicians, at least we use the sort of, we have to use the jujitsu of responding to the incentives of short-term thinking to affect the long-term change. So the short-term thinking is how do I get reelected? Short-term thinking is how do I keep my job? What do I do today? And so you, people don't like their name to appear in the wa headlines of the Washington Post unless it's for doing something good. Um, and so the way that you keep them out of the headlines is to ensure that they are keeping the taps turned on. Because when they turn them off, when the data stops flowing, when the citizen engagement stops happening, when they're not being responsive to the things that you're asking about, and we've you know, stretched our necks way out by saying that we will do this because the opportunity now to be to fail at this agenda and to be held accountable, because frankly, there are a million things we could put up online. And for everything we put up online, there will be something else that we haven't done yet that somebody will want and complain about. And so we are actively seeking that complaint, if you will. We're actively seeking that collaboration of working together to push ourselves higher to the next level so that over the long term we make it very difficult to go back to the way that our institutions worked before. I have to say, and again, this may be, you know, from where I sit um, and that helps me to get this job done and to, to do this work, is that we have already changed the culture in government beyond the point of recognition of where it was a year ago. Mm -hmm. 
Um, it is a different place, and when you talk to people, it is so inspiring to hear from people how excited they are by public service now. And that's, again, in part because of this president, because of the political momentum that he generated, but it's because of the work that each individual in government that they now can do and that's now being rewarded in terms of embracing and rewarding and celebrating innovation. Um, it's the fact that the Department of Labor gave out snow globes last week to all the employees who went in during the blizzard. Um, and I don't know why, this sort of captured my imagination. I love the idea of a snow globe somehow that was celebrating Snowmageddon um, to the people, uh, Snowmageddon 2010, to the people who went in and did their job above and beyond the call, the call service. It's the guys who run the Federal Register who now are making this data set available and are so excited to have... Do you know what it's like if you've been publishing the Federal Register, that PDF document that all these years people have said, oh, boring, who cares about that, and the bowels of the, federal, uh, the, bowels of the National Archives. And now they're on the front page of WhiteHouse.gov, and everybody's talking about it, and their GovPulse guys are making mashup tools based on what they've done, and people care about the Federal Register. It's exciting. People love those data sets. And for the people in government whose job it is to make that data mm -hmm. and to collect it, to suddenly be heroes... Um, I think it is a wonderful, wonderful time to be involved in public service. It's a wonderful time to be part of a process of institutional reinvention. Um, and the more that we can do to both offer a, the carrot and the stick of, um, that, to foster long-term change, I think the better off we'll be uh, to get us to the next level, which will look like something quite different than anything we know today. I just imagined every bureaucrat with their own fan club. <laughs> Which would change a lot of things. I like, I, I, I like it. I do want to ask one further question, which is, and it's raised by this, there is oscillation in government. Adopt it's one of the things, that, that the reason that I think two parties emerged, even though mm -hmm. it's not in the Constitution, is, is it one way of, of maintaining a, a, a kind of a balance over time is with oscillation yeah. in time. So we get a lot of regulation, and then there's a period of deregulation. And that's worth doing, because not all the regulations were that wonderful. And or, or they become outdated and so on. So uh, we'll get a period of great openness, and then presumably there'll be a period of, uh, I don't know if it's with a conservative government or who knows, of cutting back on some of the openness, and then uh, more but different openness with new platforms and so on and so forth. Are there ways to kind of build in the hooks in the software and the technology, and in a sense in the management and in the expectations that this is a ongoing evolving process that will, is not going to get locked in in the present mode. Uh, the mode will keep changing, and the mode is aware that it is supposed to keep changing. Is there a way to, to do that kind of meta-management? Interesting. It's an interesting question, which I think maybe a common, you know, you, the, the, the uh, question may itself be the answer in some ways. Let me say, first of all, that if you saw David Cameron's TED Talk, Mm -hmm. um, that this is, this is a, if you will, a post-partisan agenda in many respects. So it's the conservatives now in, in the UK who are campaigning on a platform of openness, right? So it's the, uh, you know, the anti-moat uh, mission, if you will. Um, uh, nobody's, the, the moats, the, all, the, all the parliamentarians who are buying their, doing their moat cleaning with uh, taxpayer dollars that was uncovered right, recently right, right. in the UK. Um, so the push towards transparency is, is in many respects um, an issue that is, that is shared by both left and right mm -hmm. in many respects. Um, so it, it's, it's something that I think we can agree on. But I think you are right that we do have to view this as a dynamic and changing and evolving process. I mean, w 
you know, I don't, I don't really know. I, I'd be interested to know. What, it's, a, it's a good question about how we think about that. But I, uh, I would say a few things. Um, one is just that the consciousness that we are engaged in a process of change that is highly experimental. And experimental is not a word that we frequently associate with government. It's a word that makes a lot of people uncomfortable because we're government. We're supposed to know how to do it. We're supposed to be the experts, right? So feeling our way, groping our way towards new institutional design um, is an unusual kind of concept, but it also keeps us humble. I think it allows us to realize that we really are figuring out as we go. Mm -hmm. And we know that when it comes to things like engagement and participation, we don't have the tools to do it. We don't have the know-how how to do it. We don't have the practices for how to do it, yet these aren't evolved yet. Um, so for all the people, there's now I'm on a listserv where people are discussing these ideation platforms and there's a lot of criticism. Is Scale the right tool? Should you use this tool or that tool? How does this work? And et cetera. And I think it's wonderful because the opportunity to say, we don't know how to do brainstorming right within government. And what if the issue is a highly scientific issue? What if it's a highly value-driven issue? What if it requires short answers or longer answers? Because we haven't had the institutional practice with actually connecting institutions to networks before. Um, not really in the way and at the scale that we can do now. So yes, Thomas Jefferson wrote the letter to the patent examiner, excuse me, to the professor in 1791, but the concept now of a large-scale institutional shift is um, one that we have to do with a high degree of humility, enthusiasm, but humility going forward, and recognizing that it has to be an evolving process. And so one of the other things that's great about the people that I work with is that they truly believe that in rough consensus running code, in other words, mm. we got up data.gov in May. We started in January, um, and we got it up in May. And that was, you know, but in January, we didn't even know I couldn't even find my office at that point. You know, we were trying to figure out where the light switch was. Um, to, to get it done that fast, knowing mm. that we would start and we would go from there. Um, to start this open government participatory discussion with tools um, that we cobbled together out of what was freely available, um, with no existing infrastructure to do it, and we basically we took what was free um, that would basically do the job, and we cobbled together three things that forced people to sign on to three different tools, and there was no common interface, and so everybody said, oh, there's no common interface, and the design is terrible, and all this, but we did something, um, and we started the ball rolling, and when people saw that, oh, the White House put up their data, or the White House did a citizen engagement, or they're releasing the visitor logs, that in turn, um, you know, it's rough consensus running code. Version 0.5, open government. This year, version 1.0, and we'll see where we go over the next seven years. What I love is, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. Gotcha. We're no longer discussing this in theory. We're discussing it in practice because of you. Thank you. Thank you all. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.